0: It wasn't the guys that closed the Mafia bars after Stonewall. It was the lesbians.
1: August from the Queer Core Podcast here, coming at you hot over the airwaves. It is vibrating. What did you think about our episode on Perry Brass? Well, if you liked him, get ready for Michaela Griffo. A hot-headed and fiery Italian woman who didn't even let the Mafia scare her. She's a lifelong activist who was also a member of, you guessed it, the New York City Gay Liberation Front. Michaela is an artist, feminist, and activist who was at the heart of many groundbreaking movements. She was a member of the National Organization for Women, the Gay Liberation Front, Radical Lesbians, and the Red Stockings. In addition to her activism, she is an accomplished visual artist using her talents to amplify the voices of marginalized communities. She was a prominent figure in the fight for women's rights and LGBTQ liberation. One thing that she's very proud of, though, is her work to remove gay bars out of the dirty palms of the mafia. Michaela says her upbringing colored her whole life. The following audio is from an interview I did with her in her loft in New York City in 2023.
0: Well, I came from an alcoholic family. So there was always, all of my, every single one of my first cousins is a drug addict or an alcoholic. It just, it talked about a family disease. So there was always alcohol. And because my father was a surgeon, and so there were always painkillers everywhere. My father was also addicted to painkillers. And my mother was a nurse. And so every time we'd have a feeling, my mother would say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. And she'd give us a pill. I had no idea what those pills were. But I when I share my story in AA and in NA, I always say that it really began in Ernst that when I was 12, I tried to kill my father because I believed that was the only way I could stop the sexual abuse. And I saw a knife on the kitchen table. And the only thing that kept me from being in Bedford Hills for the rest of my life was... I picked up that knife, my mother started screaming, and my older brother was a captain of the wrestling team at his Jesuit high school, and he grabbed that knife out of my hand. But I ended up in the psych ward, where my fa- the hospital where my father practiced medicine. My uncle was on the board of directors. And I poured my heart out to a psychiatrist because I thought they were supposed to help people. So I'm telling him everything I can remember. And he listens for about an hour, and he says to me, it's normal for little girls to, you know, make up stories like make up stories like that about their father. And he put this yellow capsule in my hand, and I thought I said to him, "What is it?" And he said, it, "I heard numb It was a Nembutal, but I heard all. I took that Numbadol, and and that's what it did."
1: Question authority. Why are you doing this to me? Why do I feel this way? How do I get out? It wasn't long before Michaela was radicalized.
2: My introduction to radicalism came when I was 16 years old. I went to Harlem, a friend of mine. She had to get an illegal abortion. And I was so horrified by what I saw that I came back down to the city and I joined what was called the Red Stockings. We were the first group that was going to change the abortion laws in New York.
1: And here we are, over 50 years later, fresh off the United States Supreme Court, thank you Donald J. Trump, overturning of Roe v. Wade. There are so many women and compassionate people out there. We stand united in our fight for civil rights. Life wasn't a cakewalk for Michaela. She would walk and get spat on and hit. However, she is a fighter. Get her wound up. I've heard it and seen it. And she go go goes.
2: I was not gay as a young person. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I was in a convent school. I had a kind of roundabout way of getting to the GLF. Um, I come from a violent alcoholic home, and I left home very young and came to New York. I got used to being spit on and hit and arrested. By the time I got to the GLF, we're like, oh, okay, I've already been through this. Um and then I joined the National Organization for Women later on. And uh, I you know, I realized uh, then because by then I had met a woman. I, I used to go to the Red Stock in meetings they were at the Washington Square Methodist Church, where it was a hotbed of radicals, you know, it was the Panthers, the young lords, you know, we all used to meet there and one day this very attractive woman uh, a Swedish woman came up to me and she said, would you like to drop for coffee? And I thought she wanted to talk about, you know, the red stockings. Yeah. Long story short, for six months, you know, and then she wanted to go to Andy Warhol's party. Well, I'm a student at Pratt by now. Of course, I wanted to go to Andy Warhol's party. So, you know, it was my introduction to a whole new way of life, including the fact that I had no idea for six months that I was dating this woman because I thought, <laughs> Just never occurred to me until one night she said, Some night you come and stay with Agnata, yes? And I said, Oh, that would be fun. And she
1: kissed me. <laughs> that kiss changed everything for Michaela. From that point on, she no longer considered herself bisexual.
2: At that time, I was in a consciousness raising group, you know, a consciousness raising group. And I thought everybody was going to be thrilled I go and I tell them, Now I'm dating and in walk with a woman. They're like, oh, you're going to lose your apartment. You're going to be thrown out of your home. You know, I'm like, what in the world? I'm the same person I am. I was supposed to marry my fiance. I was living with him when Stonewall happened. I was living with a man I was going to marry on Horatio Street. And uh, now they're telling me because I love a woman, all hell's going to break loose. This is unacceptable. That is what brought me to the Gay Liberation Front. The fact that what was happening in the women's movement calling lesbians you know lavender menace lavender herrings you know that this was unacceptable i'm the same person i was when i was living as a heterosexual i am now a proud lesbian and i'm not going to have anyone tell me that i'm going to lose my house and my job and everything else so that's how i ended up and when i just much like perry said when i walked in it was like you know men in dresses women in leather it was like wow this is the this is
1: the future you know It's just great so that's my story many ogl's original gay liberationists often reflect on the pivotal consciousness raising groups they were a part of in contemporary language these groups were leaderless gatherings where individuals shared their experiences and collaboratively brainstorm ways to enhance society based on those experiences these spaces serve not only as forms for self-discovery, but also as a source of support, fostering a nurturing environment. They gave individuals confidence to engage in necessary political actions.
0: We were like a family. We're all weirdos. You know, like I said, you know, when I uh, talk, you know, that... When I walked in that room for the first time, the Gay Liberation Front, there were men in dresses, there were women in chains and leather, you know, there were women that looked like they just came from a you know, Wall Street office. But we all had the same focus, to free, no one is free until we're all free. That we were totally on board with working with, like I say, the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, the women's movement, if you know, were the lavender menace. I was the one that started that whole action because of what Susan Brown Miller wrote. I mean, that's a Carla J. put it in her book. It's very, you know, what happened. Very few people know how that action came about.
1: A family of weirdos coming together to kick ass. It is important to remember in our grassroots efforts that we need to reach outside of our immediate circle to learn and grow from others with the same net goal. While approaches may differ, no one is free until we are all free. What's the difference between freedom and civil rights?
0: Civil rights is the law. You can write all the laws you want. Freedom is when you... Are able to live the life that you want to live with dignity and without being you know arrested and what all that other stuff and I always said that laws don't change people's minds people do you can make all the laws in the world you want but it when you finally meet somebody and that's what we were all about and that's why and these young kids, they have no idea of our real history. In 1970, Huey Newton, we all went to, a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, Jim Ferrat was there, uh, Mark Siegel, um, Mark Horn. We all went to Philadelphia for the convention that the Black Panthers had. It was to change the Constitution of the United States. That was close, whatever. And that, that, And you can look it up. It's on the Internet. Huey Newton gave a very famous speech there in which he said that the Panthers were going to work with women, with the women's movement, and with the Gay Liberation Front, and he called us the most radical of all of the movements because nobody was going to tell us what to do with our bodies and our lives. And he said, I don't want to hear the word faggot out of any of your mouths. It's a very famous speech. You can, you'll find it on the internet, just like Huey Newton, 1970, his speech on homosexuals. We were respected by all of the other groups, which I cannot say about the gay groups that came after us. Because they were all about sex. Oh, let's have sex, sex, sex. have hated women. In 1971, which was the second year of the march, by then the GAA had taken over. And they said that women were not going to be allowed to march, that it was a gay march, and women were not going to... Well, we didn't have cell phones or Internet or anything, but let me tell you, the word went out. And come Sunday morning, every goddamn dyke that had a bike or a friend with a bike, Staten Island, Westchester, Connecticut, you name it, all showed up with those bikes. And from that day forward, Dykes on Bikes was always the first one out.
1: Many GLFers had previous experience fighting for civil rights, and the quote that comes to mind is the feminist motto, the personal is political. It was a common belief among second wave feminists that the personal experiences of women were rooted in their political situation and gender inequality. Things come together in a symbiotic relationship. You cannot separate lived experiences from forced limitations. And vice versa. I want to um, talk a little bit about you mentioned, like the interconnectivity with the Young Lords and the other groups as well. It seems like now we're like expanding the rainbow rather than reaching out to other groups. Do you think that's true?
0: I am adamant. When somebody calls me queer, I say to them, "I am. I don't identify as queer. I'm a lesbian." Because the word queer means nothing to me. I see these 20-year-olds with blue hair and nose rings who have never had a same-sex relationship, have never suffered. I look at somebody like Barbara Giddings or Joan Nessel, Phyllis Lyon, Del Martin, the thought of calling them queer... These are my idols. I know what these people suffered from: being thrown out of apartments, losing jobs, being destitute because of who they loved. What the hell are these twenty-year-olds got to lose? What have what? It's like it reminds me of my what my teacher in in, college, in uh, grad school was Diane Arbus, and um, I remember this one guy. When she was showing the picture of the guy with the curlers in his hair and the nail polish, and this guy who's Total jerk. Because what are you showing us pictures of these freaks for? Well, Diane, she, you know. She said to him, What indignities have you suffered in your life that you have the audacity to call these people freaks? She said, Get out of my classroom. She threw him out of the room. So don't, not. and she was right. And this is how I feel about these qu- What indignities have you suffered that you have the right to be telling women that you know we're now what the hell am I called a bleeder uh womb you know I'm reduced to body parts my vagina is now called a Barbie pouch.
1: Where are you hanging out with that? So
0: what? Well, it's no. This is common knowledge. I'm mean, you. This is what. Come on, people who give birth. Bleeders, lactating machines. I mean, my breasts are now called lactators or whatever. It's ridiculous. We've changed the whole language so that women and anything that has to do with women has been eliminated. They thought at my show, I'm sorry to have it was sold immediately. At my opening, I had a drawing. It was the word woman in, in pink erased with an eraser next to a, Women erased people were fighting over that drawing because they knew that was the truth, mm-hmm. Women have been erased what? so why, i i't their whole point to me of these young people i don 't know what they want because none of them are suffering from anything they they're the most educated you know you go to any country in the world and it, they don 't have the opportunities that these American right. children have
1: now, 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 remember. Michaela is one of the radical activists from the golden age of activism when things actually got done. She speaks a million miles per minute and has her lines down pat. She knows what she wants to say and how she wants to say it. A lot of her views do not align with modern understandings of sex and gender. This became clear when I moderated a panel she was on. I like to mention this because, to the LGBTQ History Project, this is not a disqualifier. We acknowledge and bow in honor of the people who fought on the front lines of civil rights. We always treat them with the respect they deserve. What well, do you think it does to our movement?
0: Oh, I—I I mean, we're the last. I, I don't. I said I don't have a community anymore. I risked my life. Do you realize that? The people that marched in that first gay pride march, we risked our lives. It was not a joke to us. We were risking our lives to say we are here. We demand. I'm the one that the mafia put a gun to my head.
1: One action in the Gay Liberation Front was to get the gay bars out of the mafia's control. Back in 1966 this young Genovese guy named Tony Loria, aka Fat Tony bought the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in downtown New York City. The Stonewall Inn used to just be another born straight bar but Tony had a vision. He gave the place a makeover and turned it into a happening gay bar on Christopher Street. During this time, the Mafia controlled almost all of the gay and lesbian bars in New York City and beyond. With Stonewall, Fat Tony was greasing the palms of the NYPD six Precinct with about $1,200 a week, just so they would look the other way when things got a little, well, rowdy behind closed doors. From watered-down drinks to jukebox tunes and bootlaid smokes, the mob had it all figured out for maximum profit. Mafia-controlled gay bars weren't just a casual hangout spot, they were entire gangster operations. Little did the mafia know, though, that Michaela spoke Sicilian, and she was ready to stand up to the man.
0: It wasn't the guys that closed the mafia bars after Stonewall. It was the lesbians. We were out there picketing and whatever. And Flavia, who I adore, Flavia, Rando and I, because we were Italian, with Gay Liberation Front decided that we were going to be the ones who were going to stand outside and picket or hand out leaflets so that the women would leave cookies and Gianni's and these other bars and come to the dances at Alternate U, which is what the Gay Liberation Front, we started these dances at Alternate U, and everybody came, Sylvia came, you know, we had everybody, drag queens, I mean, we, we were, it was a great time, but anyway, the women's dances were prime. I don't remember Sylvia or Marsha coming to the women's dances, but, um, so after a while the Mafia started to notice that on a Saturday night, their bars were emptier and emptier, and so they grabbed one of those flyers, that was stupid enough to bring into the bar, and so we're all dancing away at alternate you there must have been 200 women you know music blaring whatever and I'm standing there with the cash Box and the little signs you know two dollars for beer or whatever well the door opens and there's this long You know stairway coming up to the second floor where we were and the first thing I saw were the guns and So I slammed the cash box. I turned around. I passed it to Donna got and I said Put this in a garbage bag and go down the back stairs as fast as you can. She puts it in the garbage bag. They come up and I was cool as a cucumber. I said, you know, and the music stops and these girls are all terrified. And I said, can I help you gentlemen? And they go, well, we want, where's the money? You're taking money from us and blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm sorry. I said, you know, we don't charge anything. These dances are free. I said, you're welcome to come and stay, you know, dance if you want, have, you know, a beer. I'm treating them like gods, you know. So they're not getting anywhere. So they, now they're getting angry. So he puts a gun in front of everybody, right in front of, in my, in my head. He goes, if you don't stop this, we're going to kill you. And I said to him, so everybody could hear it. The music had stopped now. I said, then you better shoot me right here," I said, because we're not in front of everyone. I said, because we're not going to stop. So then they go. They make the big mistake. They go over to Martha Shelley because she looked like a little cherubic angel, you know. They go over to Martha and they go. They did not put the gun to her. They go. Do you know who we are? And she said, No. And I don't care. Do you know who we are? We're the Gay Liberation Front, and we're going to put you out of business. And they just, you know, they they were they just turned around and went down. And I wanted to yell. I did yell. Next time, send your sisters. I was gonna say next in Italian. I said next time, send your mothers. But I knew they'd kill me if I said that. <laughs> but you know, when the way, reason when Flavia they chose Flavia and I because it, when we first started doing it, these mob you know, there was all these mob guys that would sit there in front of you know, and they came chasing and I say non toccare io sono sangue. Don't touch me. I'm blood. Now that's real. You know that's real Sicilian. So they didn't. know, I could have been Carlo Gambino's daughter for all they knew. Oh, here's a, you know son of sangue, you know, only a real you know Italian would say something like that, so then they would like back off but but it was it was great fun. It was fun, it was dangerous, but you know, we had a we had a cause. We had a belief that this had to end all of it, the racism, the sexism, you know, all of it, the way Puerto Ricans were treated. We believed in we believed in that fight and that we were all in it. We understood the white girls and and um you know the Gay Liberation Front, we had no problem understanding why black women and Puerto Rican women didn't want to be part of the women's movement. They weren't worried about the glass ceiling. They were worried that their mothers were working these crummy jobs as cleaning houses with no health care.
1: Following the watershed Stonewall Rebellion and the Gay Liberation Front's foundation, dissonant members of the Gay Liberation Front established the Gay Activist Alliance (GAA) in New York City on December 21, 1969. Unlike its precursor, the GAA's exclusive focus lay in the advancement of rights for gay men. Embracing a politically neutral stance, They sought to effect change through established political channels rather than a mass anti-imperialist takedown. Central to their mission was the creation of a single-issue, politically-neutral organization dedicated to securing fundamental human rights, dignity, and freedom for the broader gay community. This marked a significant departure from the radical, politically-charged approach of the Gay Liberation Front which aligned itself with other groups like the Black Panther Party and adopted a pronounced left-wing anti-capitalist stance. It also isolated many GLF women and feminists like Michaela. She took note when the GAA wouldn't let Sylvia Rivera speak in the 1973 Pride March. The, The
0: 1977 March was a big one. That's when I went back full force. I was very disgusted by and you see it in if you watched a question of equality did you watch that oh you, that was the other thing I sent you was uh-huh. it's they're interviewing you'll see marsha in that and and jim and carla and all the all the even Joe nessels in it um and you'll see that scene from 1974 from the march when we marched we started uptown and marched into washington square park and Sylvia was on the stage saying, you know, your brothers and I'm your sisters, right. right. And they and these college boys, these clean cut, you know, they didn't want to know shit. And I was so disgusted when I talk about it that that was it for me. That was it for me. I knew that that was the first time I felt like our community has splintered. It's all about gay guys wanting, you know, discos and fucking everywhere and and even then I had an inkling that something bad was going to happen, you know, because I would, you know, I work with these guys, you know, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I we went to the baths, and I fucked this one. Fuck that. I said, you know, and they were always getting like, not herpes, I forgot what, but they had to get shots of penicillin. I said, I worry about you guys because, you know, someday I just have a feeling that, you know, you're going to get something there isn't going to be a shot for. And so, of course, I got sober on March 1st, or uh, April 1st, 1984. N.A. My first two years were in N.A. because my both of my rehabs are for drugs. And, you know, I was at the Gay Community Center, had just opened. Um, Jim Farratt was behind that, opening up the gay... I don't know if you've ever talked to Jim. He's... Uh, a lot of people don't like Jim. I know they have a thing. But Jim actually was responsible for getting that started. And... Um, You know, one day I'd go to the meeting and, you know, I'd say, where's Jose? Oh, Jose has a sore throat. He'll be here next week. Next week. Where's Jose? Oh, he died. He died? What do you mean he died? He had a sore throat. You know, oh, so-and-so has, he got the flu. Next week, he died. What? We didn't know what, they were dropping like flies. Because I was, was, N.A. was predominantly men and it was gay N.A. So it was gay guys who were. IV drug users, the double whammy. Thank God I wasn't an IV drug user. I never did, shot anything. So, you know, that's where my whole, you know, it's really, the director of the Leslie Lohman Museum asked me once, you know, were you doing art during AIDS? You know, because would I, would I have loved to. I said, no, I said I was too busy changing diapers and holding hands and, you know, Staying with people until they died. I said I would have loved to have had the time to do art, but these were the guys that saved my life. And one by one, they all died. My whole home group was dead by the time I was probably about. By the time I was ten years sober, my entire ANA home group was dead from AIDS. Every single one of them.
1: And that is it, folks. Michaela Griffo coming at you hot and bothered. What did you think? This is August from the Queer Core Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at lgbtqhp.org or queercorepod.com. The LGBTQ History Project is also on Instagram at, you guessed it, the LGBTQ History Project. Of course, wink, 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 please help. You can also donate at lgbtqhp.org slash donate. All donations are tax-deductible. Our podcast is produced by David Newtown and features my archival interviews. Our theme song is by Silke Berlin and The Addictions. Thanks again to Blue Dot Sessions for the additional tunes. Folks, our next episode is gonna be a doozy, lighthearted, and funny. We have a crazy coquette, Rumi Misabu who lived for years underground with only an expired library card talking about when he got arrested and dragged before their big Halloween performance. Stay tuned and get ready. Until next time, peace out.